So the topic I want to look at tonight um, is ways of knowing how we know things. And those of you who get my newsletter um, know that I talked about this that in that most recent one. But it's worth exploring because I actually wanted, I want to see what response I might get also from all of you. So it's an interesting question. I mean, if I just say, how do you know something? Um, we don't often look at that too carefully. We know, quote unquote, a lot of things. You know, we know facts that are stored in our head. Sometimes they're not, right? <laughs> but we know a fair fair number of things like that. We probably know our address, for example. Our name, usually. Names of other people. Those are kind of things that we just have stored there as information. We also know um, how to do things. Most of us know how to put on a pot of water and boil it. Well, we know how to drive a car. If you got here by car, somehow you know that. Or we know um, social things, like we know basically uh, how to begin a conversation with somebody. Not always. <laughs> what stands out is when we don't, right? Well, we know, you know, if you've been to ISC a few times, you know that you're supposed to take your shoes off in the front. And so there's kind of cultural or community knowledge that we carry also. And it can become very evident that we don't know that if we go to, say, a foreign country, um, some other culture, even somewhere else around here, if they have a different way of doing things. And we realize, oh, I don't know how to be here. And that's a different, yet a different kind of knowledge. So I'm not attempting to make a whole catalog of all the different ways that we can know things. But I'm wanting to point out that we move through the world in a sea of knowledge that comes up at the moments when it's needed or it doesn't or it gets modified, we learn things, we read things, etc. I used to work in a um, lab many years ago, and there would sometimes be times when I would get to a machine that I hadn't used for a while, and I couldn't quite remember how to get it set up or use it. But once I was sort of standing there and had t- turned on the on switch, then I would find my hand, you know, going to a certain knob, and I'd be like, oh, right, first I have to set such and such or calibrate such and such. So I had some sort of body memory that I, even though I couldn't necessarily say it within words. So we have that, and then we have ways of knowing that we don't understand, and so we call those intuition. <laughs> and so, you know, I just knew when I saw her that such and such was true. Or sometimes we have emotional ways of knowing. We, we know the expression on someone's face or the energy they're putting out. But if it's truly something we don't understand, then we call it intuition. So, you know, why am I going through all this? 
Well, it turns out that um, how we know something is important. And interestingly, the Buddha talked about different ways of knowing. That was something that he felt was important to convey in his teachings, which were teachings about how to end suffering. So what is the connection between how we know things and whether we're generating suffering or whether we're involved in things that could lead to suffering? I don't know that I can fully elucidate that in one session, but I wanted to talk a little bit about how, about some of these teachings where he talks about different ways of knowing. Actually, maybe I'll throw in a little side note also, which is that this day in 1622, I believe, was it that it's June 22nd, it was 1633, I forget, uh, was the day that um, Galileo recanted his view that the sun is at the center of the, well, he said the universe, but that the earth goes around the sun. He was the first to declare that, which he had discovered because he had a telescope. And he decided it made more sense that the earth went around the sun than the sun went around the earth. And he stated this publicly, which was not in line with what the Catholic Church was teaching. And so he was put before a jury, not really a jury, of uh, cardinals and made to recant this view because it didn't match accepted knowledge. So the, the ways of knowing at that time placed more weight on church authority than on scientific data. Things are different these days, but they haven't always been. So, you know, that's an interesting thing, right? Um, we might say, oh, we're much more enlightened now. In some ways we are. And we still have to check in our own mind how it is that we decide that we know something, how it is that we place authority in things. Very important for our freedom. So, one of my favorite texts about this is the Sutta MN95. There's a lot in it. We're only going to do part of it. Um, But it's a conversation. There's some background given. And then it's a conversation basically between the Buddha and a Brahmin. Um, The Brahmins at the time were the religious caste in power. Maybe not unlike the Catholic Church, although different, because it was Asia. We didn't have quite the same thing. But basically, he was in the hereditary religious caste, which learned the Vedas, as, and that was considered true knowledge, gained through oral tradition. And um, he's talking to the Buddha about how one knows things. And... The Buddha says, decides to enumerate various ways that we might know things. And so he's, and he, he decides to enumerate five general categories. He says there are five things. And he, he states clearly that they may turn out in two different ways, here and now. And that's his subtle way of saying that these are not totally reliable. What five? So he names faith, approval, 
which has also been translated as liking. Oral tradition, reasoned cognition, and reflective acceptance of a view. Those are interesting. We're not going to go through them in great detail. But basically, I like this list because faith and approval are kind of emotional ways of knowing things. You know, we have we have faith or trust or confidence in something, even if we don't quite know it. And it's it's a feeling inside of us, a feeling of resonance in a way. And then there's approval or liking, also a feeling of resonance. I like that. It make it, it sounds mm, yeah, that that works for me. So it's that kind of attraction to something that we hear. Oral tradition. So this was maybe more common at that time, but this could be any kind of learned knowledge that we get through our society. So this is a cultural way of knowing. Everybody knows that, to give a real-world example, that mentally ill people deserve what they get because they're not participating correctly in society. Okay, I'm a little saying that a little tongue-in-cheek, but there are folks who have that kind of belief. There are societies that have beliefs about certain classes of people, right? So that would be an example of how we know something. We just know it. It's just, you know, it's just how it is. Uh, and then reasoned cognition, so logical deduction, and reflective acceptance of a view. And so that means you think about it um, and decide that, yes, this follows, that this makes sense. You know, somebody told me something, I thought about it, I thought it through, and I agree. That's a lot of different ways of knowing. And those two are cognitive. So we have two emotional one cultural and two cognitive. Kim, could you say this last one again? Reflective acceptance of a view. So, you know, somebody explains why it is that we should um, believe in something or other, and they give several different reasons, and we say, yeah, those reasons make sense. Okay. I've thought about that. I can do that. And so he says, um, and he says, why is it that these can turn out two different ways? He says, something may be, he uses faith as the example, something may be fully accepted out of faith, yet it may be empty, hollow, and false. But something may be factual, true, and unmistaken, but not be fully accepted out of faith. So he says there, it can go either way. You know, something could actually be true, but people don't have faith in it. Or people could have faith in something, but it could not actually be true. And so now presumably the other two options are possible too. They have faith in something that is actually true, and they don't have faith in something that isn't actually true. But he just names the two that are surprising, you know, that are not in line. And so then he goes through the same. In the same way, something may be uh, approved of but it's not actually true, and so forth, for all these five. So he doesn't say, it's significant that he doesn't say, these are completely wrong ways of knowing, and you should not ever use these. He doesn't say that. He just says, be careful. They're not, they might be right, or they might not. So that's very interesting, right? So he says these are ultimately, maybe ultimately unreliable, but... They're very common ways of knowing things. And if you think about all the ways that you know or approve or accept things, 
that may constitute a reasonable fraction of it, right? So it's interesting. He then goes on to describe uh, the path of practice that he offers, and he, he rebases it. This is the path. This is not the Eightfold Path exactly, but it, it's a description of the path. And he gives, he uses two out of these five unreliable methods as things that should be used in the path. So he says, um, I'll just read through them. First, a person places faith in a teacher. So there's faith. He says that's not reliable necessarily, but we should use it. Filled with faith, he visits the teacher and pays respect. Having paid respect, he gives ear. When he gives ear, he hears the Dhamma. Having heard the Dhamma, he memorizes it and examines the meaning of the teachings he has memorized. When he examines their meaning, he gains a reflective acceptance of those teachings. That's the second method that was unreliable. You think about the teachings and you decide, okay, these make sense to me. When he's gained a reflective acceptance, zeal springs up. When zeal has sprung up, he applies his will. Having applied his will, he scrutinizes. Having scrutinized, he strives. Resolutely striving, he realizes with the body the supreme truth and sees it by penetrating it with wisdom. So this is a path that uses, I'm not going to go through each of those steps again, but it uses two ultimately unreliable things, which are faith and reflective acceptance of a view, to arrive at what he calls realizing with the body the supreme truth and seeing it by penetrating it with wisdom. So through various sort of normal, accepted ways of knowing things, we're going to arrive at this oddly phrased thing, which I think we're intended not to quite understand the first time we hear it. We say, hmm, what does that mean exactly? Well, practice and find out, right? I think is the implication. But it's significant that he says realizing it with the body. First of all, what does that mean? The body? I thought the body was to be transcended. You know, we're doing purification of mind and heart. He realizes with the body the supreme truth and penetrates it well with wisdom. Well, I thought wisdom was something that I would gain by reading a lot of texts and being smart. But penetrating it with wisdom is something that comes after we've done all of that. It arises through practice. And this stuff about scrutinizing and striving, although sometimes we don't use such strong phrases for Westerners because they go overboard, that means, um, you know, that means practicing. That means sitting on the cushion and doing the mindfulness practices, doing concentration, um, applying yourself to the, to the inner practices, inner development. So this word, um, in other suttas, he doesn't say it quite here, but in other suttas he uses a phrase called direct knowing, the Pali word for which is abhijanati. And this is, um, this is what he's pointing toward, is something called direct knowing. I use this sutta for the detail because I think those five methods pretty much capture a lot of what we, a lot of how we know things. There's another sutta that gives an even longer list, which I'll just read um, because I think it's an interesting list of ways that we know things. 
So here they are, and he says, he says directly, don't go by reports. Another one translates it as repeated hearing. Legends, which another one translates as rumor. Traditions, scripture, logical conjecture, inference, analogies, agreement through pondering views, probability, or the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. So I'm sorry to say you shouldn't believe anything I say either. <laughs> um, you know, but that's basically don't appeal to the authority of the, of the teacher. Instead, he goes on, when you know for yourselves that, and he says, these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, will lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them, not because of legend, scripture, etc. And then the reverse for things that are skillful and helpful and beneficial, then you should adopt them. So, that's interesting too, is that he says, when you know for yourselves these things, which sounds very similar to penetrate it well with wisdom and realize for yourself with the body. So there's something very important about knowing things directly in our body, with wisdom, etc. Um, this is not an appeal to anything you think is true is true. I want to put in that caveat. Because of the little phrase that says, these qualities are criticized by the wise, in his sense of when you, when you know something. These things are criticized by the wise, and the reverse says these qualities are praised by the wise. So there's a little check in there that says, just because, in case, because you might not be completely liberated yet, you should check whether or not what you think is valuable is criticized or praised by the wise. That matters. So what is this thing called direct knowing, which is the alternative to all these somewhat unreliable, ultimately unreliable methods? I would say that maybe a good descriptor of it is that it's unmediated. So it's unmediated knowing. And our usual ways of knowing things are filtered in some way through what our culture, our views, our beliefs, our emotions, our logic. We have some screen in there that, that's like the little um, filter that we're applying. And this is unmediated knowing. It's not unmediated knowing. It's not passed through those. It's coming directly. So it's not something, you know, obscure or um, completely out of the out of the ordinary, although it is unordinary in a sense. But this is knowledge that's very direct and often arises kind of um, as sensations that are hard to put words on in the body, or it could be in the mind. Do you think you've uh, you have experienced knowledge like that? It was unmediated and kind of hard to put words on. Yeah, I see yeah. some nods. This is not a totally impossible experience to have, even if you're not fully awake. Usually, if it's um, of this type, it will stand out, and you look back and say, "Huh, that was interesting." Now, if you know, I think awakened people, it's kind of becomes more commonplace, <laughs> but. Um, this is not a, you know, this is not an experience that's impossible to have. Humans are um, able to do that. 
And that's what we develop. It's what we bring forth through practice a greater percentage of the time. I think we begin to sense this option more basically when we're able to relax and not rely so much on our views, our opinions, our habits. Habits of mind are the worst. You know, that's really what we need to overcome in our practice is these habitual ways of seeing things and of reacting to things. And sometimes we even know that we have them. We know, oh, you know, I'm so prone to interrupting people, for example. We know oh, that's one of my habits, and still it's there all the time. And a lot of practice is um, learning to let those go, learning to see through those and trust that we can be spontaneous and respond in an unmediated way to, to what's happening It can feel, like when I said knowledge like that will feel um, different a little bit, it can feel like it's something extra. Like, oh, I had a little extra thing there, a little extra intuition. But my sense is that it's actually there and blocked most of the time. It's the other way. Um, So this gives the possibility a sort of a sense that an awakened mind would have a far richer experience, you know, without so much filtering. And it would also have access to higher quality information. Yeah, so this is a motivation to practice. I want to have higher quality information in my system because then I'm going to make wiser choices. An example I like to give about this, maybe just to demonstrate different levels of knowledge, is a time when I went on a ropes course. Actually, it was at the at Mount Hermon. Have you guys, anyone ever been there in Scotts Valley? It's a really fun place, actually. Um, so they have this ropes course where there are, you're, you're way up off the ground, and there are trees that have platforms around them. And between the trees, to get from tree to tree, there's something suspended, like a cargo net or a plank, by you know, fastened by ropes, so it's not a solid plank, or you know various things like that. And you have to get from platform to platform across these wobbly, shaky things, and you're, you know, 40 or 50 feet off the ground. Now you're now we're, you're wearing a harness, so, you know, you can't actually fall. But um, let me tell you, the intellectual knowledge that I couldn't fall, <laughs> completely useless. <laughs> completely useless. My body's visceral reaction was, Ah, <laughs> we have a built-in, we have a hardwired fear of falling because you know, that's one of the things that can kill you instantly. So people who don't have that fear didn't pass their genes on, right? <laughs> so we have built into us this fear of heights and of falling. And so, you know, you're going to step out onto a cargo net that's 50 feet off the ground and sort of, you know, scrape your way across it. So intellectual knowledge, completely useless. There's also a little deeper level, there's mindfulness, right? And so I was very mindful of my fear and, you know, picking my way across this net. Um, even people who don't have a mindfulness practice will get one when they're doing that. Um, you, will, you, you can't get across if you don't have some kind of mental um, ability to control that very visceral fear that's coming up. So yes, I'm feeling the fear, feeling the fear, and you know, going across this net. That helped, you know, with some practice I got used to that, let's say. But it was still very much in my system. I could feel the adrenaline in my system. 
And I have to say that what, um, what reduced the fear most effectively was to actually slip <laughs> and fall, but not really fall. You know, you fall and the harness catches you. And then you know, then the body knows, oh, I don't fall when I slip off the net. And so, not that I don't think we ever maybe don't completely overcome that very um, animal preservation of life phenomenon. But um, this is a direct experience as opposed to a mental application or, worst, the intellectual knowledge. So you see the different levels. And it's the same in our life, right? Somebody tells you, oh, everything will be fine. Does that help at all? <laughs> you know, and then maybe maybe we have a mindfulness practice or we have, you know, some, um, some emotional um, support from somebody that's deeper than just telling us something and we feel, okay, I can... I can venture into a new area, and we need that. That's very helpful. But what's most helpful is if we actually, say, lose our job and then discover that um, it's okay. You know, we, we figure something out. In a couple months, we have another job, or we move in with a friend, or and then we realize, oh, I have, you know, I have some resilience. I have things in my life that will come. Or maybe even we just trust, not knowing specifically what will help us, but just through the course of life experience, we realize, oh, I can get through things. That really builds some real wisdom if we're open to it. Direct knowing. So what can we do about this in practice? You know, what kind of helps us work on, on this level of, of understanding? One is to, um, to be very clear how you know things. You know, if you're going to make an assertion like, we should do this, how do you know that? Why, why are you saying that? Why do you feel that? Um, so you, you could say, you could realize, oh, I thought this through logically. And so then instead of just saying we should do this, you could say, well, I've thought this through and I've concluded that this would make sense. Or because of X, Y, and Z, I think such and such is true. And so you've made clear how you've thought about it. Or if you say, I just have a gut feeling this isn't going to work. You've been, you've been honest about how you think you know something. Or you say, I have a lot of faith in that person. I think we should let them be our leader. Or I think we should let them um, volunteer for this activity in our organization, even though we don't know them very well. I have a lot of faith in them through their character. So you're being clear about how you know something. And that's helpful not just for transparency with the people around you, but it's helpful for you, too, to know how it is that you're knowing things. That's actually in the sutta. It's called preserving the truth. So we preserve the truth by stating what it is and how it is that we know things to be true. And we can also consider if we didn't have access to cognitive or emotional or cultural ways of knowing, how could things still be known? How would we know things then? How do you really deeply know things? Through your experience. Yeah, through your experience. So direct knowing through experience. It 
be a little careful because memory is a way of knowing. Memory can go. <laughs> Somebody in this room is probably going to get Alzheimer's given the number of people here. Just statistically, we don't know who or when. And then how do we know things? There's still the direct knowing in the moment. You're right. The experience of what's happening right now. Hi, Leah. But even with good brains, we still remember things wrong. We do, don't we? <laughs> it's amazing to, you know, even just like an eyewitness account of a traffic accident that happened five minutes earlier. It's very different. What what can we say about things that happened 20 years ago? I keep, I've been keeping a journal for decades. Uh-huh. And it's pretty shocking sometimes to read some episodes in there that I wrote it down that at that time in my handwriting dated, and I remember it completely different now. That is really valuable, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, humbling. Very well, humbling, yeah. Well, we have so many factors that lead into memory, right? The emotional tone at the time, the facts, um, our state of energy or and not. And we have reasons to remember things as happening differently. And we filter them based on what we want to remember, how good we want to look in retrospect. Exactly. And it's usually that I remember myself as being the hero of the story. Yeah, that's right. I looked really good. <laughs> it's really true. Very selective. Um which can be fine. I mean, I don't know. The past, the past is gone. <laughs> but it's true. It's not accurate what we're carrying in our mind. So that's one of those things that can turn out one of two ways, right? <laughs> we might remember it, but it completely didn't happen that way. Yeah. So this is interesting, right? And this is a lot of what we're up against in practice, is kind of using... The knowledge, I mean, if the information that's coming in in a given moment, how do we respond to that to arrive in the next moment? And the Buddha says this is a lot about where our suffering is. You know, if we react with greed, hatred, or delusion, not seeing things clearly, we create conditions for suffering some, at some point in the future. Whereas if we respond with non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion, which anyone's capable of, you don't have to be fully awakened, then we're creating the conditions for happiness in the future. So it very much behooves us to be careful about the information that's coming in, how we know it, how we're responding to it, whether or not we're applying some filter or some past habit of a lot of my, um, I've noticed a lot of my negativity is often based on just kind of habitual patterns or of irritation with a a given person or with a given situation. Or with just, um, I don't like the way the fact that it's coming in too quickly, and so I put up a barrier, something. Um, and so a lot of that is just kind of habit. It's very humbling. So yeah, I would I would invite uh, further comments or questions. You know, how do you know things, and do you think about how you know things, and what is this direct knowing? Does that have bearing on your experience from day to day? Yeah, Katie. I was, I was thinking as you were telling all of that um, about a lot my tendency to uh, respond negatively at times and, and how much of a habit that is. Yeah. And so, um, just today I was noticing things coming up, whether it's being critical or 
and my feelings hurt, or whatever. And and how how much it's just a habit, and it's hard to to say no to that. Mm-hmm. And yet um, having having learned the teaching or had faith in the teaching, um, I've over time got um, in the habit or I've started to, when I see those thoughts coming up, to, to stop them. And, um, and then, so that's like from faith kind of or listening to mm-hmm. someone else. Yeah, and probably also it's some experience at this point. And you know that when you do this, yeah, it's, it's better, right? Knowing um, and like being able to see from meditation and just from daily living to see how, um, yeah, how 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 painful that stuff really is, and, and how healing it is for us. That's, yeah, this is beautifully said. And, it's, and if we didn't have mindfulness and the openness to notice, yeah, actually this way of thinking is kind of painful, we, would, we wouldn't be able to let it go in a sense. Because it's just this habit that's just kind of going. But once it's seen and we're actually able to admit, you know, this isn't helpful for me <laughs> to be doing this, that starts the process of being able to let go of it. I don't think we do the letting go quite actively. It's more like what you said, sort of a faith or just a knowing after we see enough times that what we're doing is not helping us. Um, then there's a sort of a, a letting go. I heard a lovely phrase recently, which is that the sometimes the wound is seeking the arrow. Does that resonate? So sometimes, sometimes the wound seeks the arrow. You know, we have, we, we, we have this part of us that's used to getting hurt because of our habit. Um, and so when conditions arise that kind of bring that hurt up, we look for, you know, we, we look for those ways that we can bring it in. Oh, you know, we're feeling vulnerable. And so we look for ways in which somebody is probably saying something against us. You know, it's like, huh, instead of just saying, yeah, I'm kind of feeling vulnerable right now. Not every mind does this, but some of them do. Um, yeah. <laughs> we can also have a sense when we're letting go of habitual patterns of thinking, especially in sort of negative ones. There can be resistance to doing that because we, we won't know who we are if we didn't think in <laughs> that way. You know, whenever I'm puttering around the house, I always ruminate about how irritating my partner is you know that's just like that's my time for that kind of rumination and if i didn't do that and i just enjoyed the puttering around the house i wouldn't know who i was you know that wouldn't be me so there can be that too That could be a really good thing, I think. What? To think, I don't really, this isn't really me, because... That could be a great thing. That was kind of where I was pointing, so yes. It might be good to be a little bit less certain who we are.
different beliefs and kinds of knowledge uh, often lead to different uh, emotional experiences mm -hmm. too. I find that in the past few months, I actually prefer to be angry, um, probably you know, the sorts of things that make me angry. And uh, I'm back here visiting, but I live in Portland now, and there's a lot of people to stoke that anger just in, in my neighborhood. And I realized just the other day how sad I really was mm. for what's happened. And somehow that was underneath. Where I was yeah. born and where I live months and things I've realized about it and that so I steer towards certain thoughts because the anger is easier and, and energizing mm -hmm. even though deeply disturbing yeah and frustrating because it keeps me from focusing this is but at least for me the sadness that I just there's really no way around it at present at the moment very often I feel sad about my country and our society um, I find I run one run away from that, and I prefer to be the angry guy. Yeah, there's so much in so what I you can just said. So manipulate that with different yeah. ways of thinking, and I wasn't fully aware. That's really insightful. Um, first of all, it's true that anger has a pleasant component to it, and it has an energy to it. Um, and that is attractive to a lot of people, whereas sadness has kind of less of that. It has less appeal, in a sense. Um, but what I hear in what you're saying is, that, and I'm not trying to put an interpretation on this, but is that you're, you're getting a more complete picture when you include that sometimes you realize, oh, sometimes I'm actually very sad, and that in a way um, the sadness might be leading to the anger as, you know, um, you know, I'm upset and disturbed, and then I want to do something about that, and then that brings forth this different energy. I feel like it's valuable just to include all the different things that are going on and not try to pretend which one's more fundamental or which one's better or worse, but just like, wow, you know, today it's more about the sadness and more about the anger and the degree to which we're willing to open to what's there. Maybe there's even other things still that are lurking around in there. And the more that we include them, somehow the more that they can inform a, a wiser total picture. Um, yeah. Sounds like you have enough awareness that you're not going to be out there like doing too much destruction with your anger. But there are ways to yeah. use the energy to, to yourself. Yeah. So it's I spent hours on end feeling really angry. And it's draining, afraid. isn't it? Yeah. In, even though it has some it's energy. Day and just like, oh my God, my body feels awful. Yeah, yeah. So that's worth that's worth noticing. You know, how can just opening to it starts to release it, and being able to talk about it starts to release it. So then there's a sense of well, okay. Um, you know, how can I how can I not fall prey to that and yet still um, act in ways that feel like they're helpful if that's what you're inclined to do. Or maybe it's time for a retreat. Go and practice for a long time somewhere. These are all viable responses. I didn't hear a question in what you said, so I just talked around it a bit. Was that 
Was that helpful at all, or did you have no, a question? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, thanks for visiting, by the way. We love having visitors. I'm dog sitting. Dog sitting. Yeah, because I left in November 15. Okay. And I've been coming to the other place, the other location, for uh-huh. about two years afterwards. Great. Some of my brothers and family are away. This is my first full day back in the Santa Cruz area. Oh, nice. And I saw your new location when I came there. Great. Welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.